Are you Laura Palmer? Hello, and welcome to The Lodgers. It's our inaugural edition. This is, of course, the Twin Peaks podcast hosted by myself. My name is Simon Howell. And every week I will be joined by my brilliant and talented co-host, Kate Rennebaum. Hello, I am Kate. Hooray! Uh, (laughs) How long... When was the first time you think we proposed doing this? Like six months ago? Nine months ago? A year ago? Oh, God, I have no idea. Um, Yeah, probably six months ago. Sounds about right. (laughs) It's it's been a long time in the offing. Way back in the day, you and I, along with, uh, with Ricky D, did... One of the most ridiculous recordings I've ever been a part of, which was a uh, what ended up like as like a three-hour podcast about David Lynch and Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive. And uh, ever since then, uh, you've you've always been my go-to for for talking Lynch, and uh, well, and for and for lots of other things. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so very excited to be doing this. So uh, here's how this is going to work. Uh, essentially, we we've timed it out. So we're going to be going through the entire original run of Twin Peaks, including Fire Walk With Me, at a clip of, on average, about two episodes a week, lining up, hopefully, uh, with the premiere date of the new season. This week, we're only going to be talking about the, the double pilot. Later in the run, we may be talking about more than two episodes a week for reasons that should be obvious to everyone. <laughs> but uh, we're not there yet. In other weeks, we will have fabulous guests. This week, we're, we're just going to stick to us. So I, I hope everyone's uh, real excited to talk some Twin Peaks. For some of you, it's going to be your first time watching. Uh, you're you know getting prepared for the new season. And probably not necessary, but we will be avoiding major spoilers for future episodes. But I think you can agree, Kate, that like this isn't, for the most part, not really a spoilable series. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there are people out there who have no idea sort of even what the core mystery is, let alone who the kind of final reveal is. Um, And so we'll definitely be trying to avoid that. But I don't know. I mean, I think uh, it's pretty saturated into the pop cultural consciousness. So we'll (laughs) hopefully we won't be able to do anything too dramatic in terms of spoilers anyway. But um, but I don't know. I mean, I do hope there are people who haven't seen the show before and are interested in uh, trying to follow along on the podcast for the first time. Um, I mean, I think part of what happened seeing it so many years later is that you don't have what happened originally when it was on television, which was this sort of mass response to it. And so it might be nice to have a kind of like critical accompaniment, like following you through the first time you're watching it. I've had recent friends that we turned on to watching it who watched it for the first time and, you know, fell in love with it. Um, And I think something like this would have been very nice for them to uh, have while they were watching it. So, yeah. Before we even get to talk about the pilot, you sort of hinted at this already, but I, I would love to just take a minute and and really set the scene for Twin Peaks and just talk about the the phenomenon a little bit because watching television and producing television for that matter writing criticism about television all this stuff the television culture was so different in 1990 on every possible level and like the level of popular engagement with a single series could be so much higher and that was certainly the case for Twin Peaks for the for just like a really like rough and tumble comparison like probably the most popular scripted series right now, or at least it was recently, was The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead at its peak, I believe the most recent season premiere, got 17 million viewers. That's a lot of viewers. But Twin Peaks, I mean, I don't know what was the most it ever got. I know that for particular episodes, like it was up to like 30 million 
The pilot was thirty-four point six million. Jesus. Yeah, when it played on the Sunday, and that that is the highest they ever had. It was it was downhill after that. They held strong for the following weeks, and I think like I'll try to sort of check in, and we can at least try to keep track of what the ratings were for these early episodes. But um, the that they started off really strong. That's always been sort of part of the myth of Twin Peaks is that its its pilot hit. <laughs> network television like I don't know a, a bomb or something like it just it was it was crazy like people were there was a lot of writing about how people were not really prepared for what it did I mean it was I mean I think you you wanted to sort of mention this the quality of network television was not so great <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to talk briefly about some of the other shows that premiered in 1990 most of which is just totally forgotten now like there was a a network adaptation of Ferris Bueller the concept was that it was like the real life stories that inspired Ferris Bueller and like Jennifer Aniston in the Jennifer Grey role, like totally Oof. like who remembers this? No one. <laughs> I had no idea. But yeah, so there's all this like cultural detritus garbage floating around. Well, and also, I mean, for people who are like aren't sort of, you know, television uh, or media studies nerds uh, like us, it's, it, is, it is worth pointing out that at that time in 1990, there still were only three major networks, which were ABC, NBC and CBS. There was a kind of burgeoning uh, cable scene. So things like HBO and stuff were starting to take more hold of, of what was available and create content for themselves and television. But they were still a, the kind of small challenger to something like the three networks. So basically, everybody just watched what was on the three networks. Um, and so they really were setting the tone for what was being made. And it was generally kind of procedural television shows like cop shows uh you know soap operas during the day um and and comedies i mean that was what the majority of it was uh when twin peaks moved to its regular slot on thursday night the following week it was going up against cheers was its main uh competitor that's sort of the the landscape the twin peaks which really was conceived and shot as like a feature-length film went up against when it arrived on television on Sunday, uh, April 8th, 1990. Well, here they are. That is the most talked about, most written about, most controversial show on television this season of What Do I Speak and Who Killed Laura Palmer? Do you know? I think we should also mention, like, maybe, like, the, the popular perception of, of Lynch and something that I find fascinating in going back into the, the archives from this period is that is seeing all these late night appearances from like Kyle MacLachlan and David Lynch and I, who I, I, I always have thought of him as like an art filmmaker first and foremost. But, you know, there was really this period where he, he was really like he was really part of, of the pop culture consciousness in like a Joe Schmo kind of level. Mm, um, yeah. Which like I guess that's still kind of true in the sense that we all know sort of what Lynchian means. Um which you know is something that we will definitely have cause to talk about later, but like it's it it really is incredible the 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 degree to which a guy as as strange as as Lynch was able to uh, was able to create this pop culture artifact. I mean, I think um, it was very much a calculated move on uh, ABC's part in terms of attracting David Lynch to work with the network, because the other part of the sort of myth here is that when Twin Peaks arrived on ABC, ABC was in the bottom for the ratings. They were trying to compete with uh, NBC and CBS, which is part of why they were sort of willing to take a gamble on Twin Peaks. I mean, when they when they uh, sort of hooked Lynch and Mark Frost, Mark Frost, I think, sometimes gets left behind in these discussions, but Mark Frost was also a really big deal at that point. Like, he'd worked on Hill Street Blues, which was 
I think alongside Twin Peaks, considered one of these early indicators of there being a, like mm -hmm. a first wave of quality television, where writing was sort of as important as anything else, et cetera, et cetera. But when they attracted David Lynch, um, part of the promise was that they were giving them money to make, uh, what was it, eight eight episodes total for the first season, nine hours of television, yeah. uh, basically without supervision. <laughs> like they were given the money and the budget and allowed to just shoot all of it without network notes, without you know overseeing. And so I think that was part of what attracted Lynch. But equally, the network was willing to spend that money because they knew that having Lynch attached to a television show would be a big coup. I mean, a lot of the kind of uh, press around it talks about this idea of like a major Hollywood sort of auteur working in television and that being such a big deal. Because I think you're right, Simon, like he was, he, he was even if not a name where everybody actually knew what he was doing or really understood it, they, his name at least already stood in for a kind of like crazy cachet of sort of like coolness, which is, which is largely related to Blue Velvet, right? Like a right. kind of contra controversy, um, you know, like Blue Velvet came out in uh, 86, right? So it was four years prior. Yeah. And, and it had been a huge deal, I think, in the American consciousness. So, Yeah, and I, I think not only was it a... This was back in the days when people really got scandalized by movies, which doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, we're all just so jaded that, you know, we that n nothing's really got a shook. But, like, Blue Velvet, I, I recall reading, you know, like Roger Ebert's original review where he just, like, he certain aspects of it he was just shocked by and you know it, it was very much a different time for like media consumption in that way yeah. um and yeah i i think having having lynch come into this like you know former safe space of network television um definitely definitely a calculated move i guess this is as good a place as any to actually segue into talking about the double pilot uh, us and and the and the 34 million who originally watched it and everyone else who's who's watching now uh so i guess let's let's just get into it uh it was uh written and written by lynch and lynch and frost and uh directed by lynch and uh i have to say my first thought on re-watching this pilot uh just as it was starting was oh my god there are so many people in the credits <laughs> that was that was my first thought yeah. I mean, I think this is a pretty common thing that people talk about with this episode is they, people have some vague memory of it sort of being about Laura Palmer and then they actually go back and rewatch it and they're like, holy crap, there's 400 characters in this show. <laughs> Which like, I've, I've mentioned this to other people and um, there's this perception that, yeah, they needed to, they needed to have all these characters because they were planning to draw out this mystery forever and they needed to have like an infant and like an infinite number of suspects which i guess is logical but mm -hmm. um i think one of the beauty one of the things that people don't talk about a lot with twin peaks is the fact that there are so many characters is like kind of a world building coup because yeah way more than like because there have been so many shows since twin peaks about like small towns with secrets and like you know it's just so like I i've seen hundreds of them and i'm, I'm just sick to death of them but yeah. and they've usually got like you know they they have like a rich ensemble of usually like twelve characters and it's so quaint when you watch Twin Peaks which has like I don't, even just in the pilot alone like forty characters or something yeah it's a lot <laughs> I mean yeah I think like the the numbers of characters it's interesting because it's I think not only in terms of there being probably like practical realities of why Lynch and Frost were building in so many characters because again like this is also part of the lore of the show is that. Uh, Lynch, I guess, from the get-go, really didn't 
didn't want to have to reveal anything uh, in relation to the secrets of the show. They didn't want to have to reveal who the quote killer was until the absolute end of the show. That that had always been the plan was to sort of not really deal with that and have it be much more about simply the kind of like world experience of the show and all the characters and the narratives and everything. And so they were clearly thinking about that with the numbers of people. But there's also the fact that it it really is just sort of like a standard of the of the genre of the like mystery genre, right? Is that you have such a huge number of people so that the viewer has to sort of play detective and be like, well, it could be this person, it could be that person. Um, and I think like one of the things that, that again, I'm sure we will talk about at length is that I think Twin Peaks is often talked about in relation to um, the soap opera as like the genre that it's most obviously playing with and like uh, kind of using as sort of its own reference for what it's doing. And the soap opera is definitely there, but I think people forget to think about like the mystery genre as an equal one. There's uh, a really great recent book uh, on Lynch by Dennis Lim. And Dennis at one point in the book talks about the kind of idea of the, the genre of the fish out of water detective, like the detective who mm -hmm. comes in to solve something from another city. And I mean, and Twin Peaks is so clearly sort of working in that vein and, and doing it so beautifully. The other thing, I mean, my overall impression impression of rewatching the pilot i first saw the pilot maybe i want to say only three or four years ago um when oh, really? I, yeah because i i'd never seen twin peaks at all and i i watched the entirety of it for the televerse podcast mm. um for just like a segment and um i saw the pilot for the first time then rewatching it now as much as i i do i do think it's it's a great pilot i think it does um you know, there's so much there's so much writing on what TV pilots have to do, and I I, yeah. I think in in terms of doing all the things that pilots have to do, I think this this does it in a really superlative way. Um, I don't think that this that the pilot showcases the the best of Twin Peaks, yeah, uh, in the way that I remembered it doing. It's got a lot of good stuff, and it's it's a it's a very good pilot, but like to me, it skims the surface of that iceberg. Yeah, I agree. I was, I've been, when we just rewatched it for this, uh, a couple of things occurred to me, which was that I usually don't just watch the pilot. I usually watch the yes. pilot plus sort of two or three episodes of it. Um, and really, I think particularly for people who are, who are new to the series and are maybe trying to get a sense of what the show is doing, I would say watch, watch right up to episode three. I mean, that, that really gives you a much better sense, I think, of, of what the show really is. Um, Lynch only directed the first two. Lynch directed the pilot and the next episode. Uh, and then they start bringing in, in the more standard model, other television directors. But Lynch and Mark Frost were responsible for kind of writing and envisioning the whole uh, first season and then par parts of the second season. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so the, the pilot when you watch it just alone and really cut it off at the end the way that you, you know, that an actual regular television viewer would have had to in 1990, um, I mean, I think the thing that struck out for me this time was how the pilot is less less unusual than I've built it up to be in my brain, which is a funny thing to say because in the universe of television in 1990, it would have been quite radical. Like, it really was really unusual. But it, it also doesn't go quite as extreme as maybe the adjective Lynchian stands in for for us now, you know? Yeah, th there are a few moments that I would isolate as being, like, harbingers of what's to come. And they're they're mostly, like, very subtle, like... The shots, I, I want to say, are in the three-quarter mark of, of the episode where it just cuts to a red streetlight, and you're like, yeah. "Why?" And you're like, "Why am I seeing a red streetlight?" Like it's in the middle of some dialogue, and then it just like cuts back to the town hall or whatever, and it's like, "Why?" And then, and then eventually, you figure out why you're seeing the streetlight. But it's like it's 
that's like one of the few moments of like this is not normal yeah we yeah we i should be careful not to go too far uh, either in, in saying that it's not an unusual pilot because it, it it really is and definitely the kind of odd insert shots are certainly the first hint that there are things happening here that are not interested in sort of following the rules of of efficient television right where uh you know for people for people who are maybe lo- uh, not again media <laughs> nerd types um i mean there, there's generally a kind of rule in both hollywood filmmaking and television which is that there's a real economy of images and words so that that every image is there really purposefully to kind of like deliver words to you that relate to plot so that you're getting as much sort of plot uh, and attention grabbing stuff into every sequence that you can get and Lynch is really not interested in doing that at all. Yeah. Um, and and some of that, I mean, again, I think they're able to play with some of that because of the the generic the generic um, frameworks of mystery shows. Like at one of the articles about Twin Peaks from 1990, I think in Variety or something, talks about the funereal pace of uh, <laughs> mystery shows where you're sort of dragging out the mystery. Um, but but more than that, I mean, Lynch is doing things like we start to get repeated shots of. In, in to, still, to this day, what I find to be one of the most unsettling shots of the show, the um, sort of up-angled shot of the uh, ceiling fan in the mm-hmm. Palmer's house that is perpetually running. And you get that even twice, maybe three times in the pilot. Yeah. And, and it, it, at, at that point, it serves no purpose, but over the, except for the sort of atmospheric uh, purpose. But over the course of the show, that becomes an incredibly important shot. Um, but anyway, so that it, definitely there are odd things that are happening already there. Yeah. I think the main aspect that I, I found to be unusual in, in, in rewatching the pilot, and I, I'd forgotten about how off kilter it really is, is the, the tonal mishmash of like yeah. the scenes of, uh, funereal is a great word of these, like a funereal mourning and dread, like mashed up with these scenes of like teens being wacky. Uh, of course, teens played by like 22 year olds, as is the case always on television. It's reflected not only in how the characters behave, but especially in the scoring, uh, which, of course, we have to mention uh, Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti uh, working together on the music. And these cues, like um, if, if you ever get a chance to hear the entire Twin Peaks archive of like nine hours of music cues, I highly recommend it. It's a day well spent. Um, yeah. And it's watching the pilot is a lot like listening to that archive on shuffle. Uh, these cues just mash up against each other in like in really really in in ways that must have I mean it still seems strange to me now yeah like I can't imagine how it scanned at the time yeah I mean I think this is again one of these things that we'll probably keep returning to and and pulling apart because it's so much a part of the show but I think this is a real marker of the pilot and and people do uh, refer to it in the in the press about it as well which is yeah this idea of there being a real uh, almost like schizophrenic is too strong because it doesn't it doesn't feel schizophrenic, but there is very rapid shifts between um, yeah really kind of dark brutal uh, weighty moments in the show immediately right into like a funny <laughs> sort of bit and then right back into a kind of horrible thing. Um, I mean it's uh, yeah there, there's like for example I I kind of tracked through the episode again right before we talked to keep track of some of these and you have cuts like. You have scenes like um, Coop, uh, and uh, I guess maybe we should do a bit of a breakdown of what actually happens in the pilot at some point, but you have scenes like Coop talking to uh, the sheriff, and they're going through um, things that they've discovered from Laura's possessions, and you have a cut of Coop saying things like, 
Diane, I'm holding in my hand a small box of chocolate bunnies, and it's like a funny joke. And then you cut right to the train car where Laura and Ronette were like brutally tortured and like Andy weeping. And it's like, what? <laughs> oh my God. So it, it definitely, in that sense, I think, is both really unusual, but also masterful in the way that it, it continually throws you off like track. You cannot, you have a really hard time sort of pinning what to expect tonally from scene to scene. And it, it continually kind of draws you back in. Right. I mean, even like Andy weeping is a perfect example because even that is like both sad and hilarious. Yes, exactly. Speaking of like tonal mishmash, like I, I think another good example would be that bizarre sequence of Audrey and the Swedes. Yeah, of course. Um, which like, you know, that happens in like this, the same space where, you know, previously we just had like some of the most crushingly sad moments of the episode. And like, why is it there? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get the, the sequence. It's almost, it's very similar to the one I just mentioned, which is that it, it builds up, you know, Audrey sort of uh, uses Laura's death as a way to mess with her father by sending these uh, Norwegian businessmen away. And the sequence ends with all of them marching out of the, the Great Northern Hotel with all of their bags. And there's like crazy stuff happening in the hotel lobby and, and music and noise. And uh, Ben Horn is chasing them. And the woman at the desk is ringing a bell repeatedly saying, the Norwegians are leaving, the Norwegians are leaving over and over and over again. And again, from that, it cuts back to uh, Coop and the sheriff in the train car where Laura was brutally murdered. And it's like horrible. <laughs> horrible stuff but yeah no i mean that sequence is amazing like it, it also is one of the first times i think that you get uh with the norwegians are leaving it's one of the first times you get a really common element of both twin peaks but lynch's work in general which is um a kind of really unusual use of repeated words and phrases um like the norwegians are leaving the norwegians are leaving like, lynch has a kind of way of turning dialogue into just sort of sound and noise which comes back to the music thing again right it, it creates this almost like talismanic quality of what mm -hmm. gets said in the show which is why there are so many like super um uh, recognizable phrases from the show, right? Because they get said over and over and over again, and they're really great, and they like really kind of capture your imagination. But anyway. This sort of gets us away from the episode a little bit, but something that, that I, I also want to sort of keep track of and mention as we discuss the show is like the influence of Twin Peaks and like how others, other series, other films, other like, like pop culture in general has like tried to produce Lynchian art. Mm -hmm. um, especially Twin Peaksian art and like t two wildly divergent levels of success. When, when you were talking about the talismanic quality of, of repeated phrases, um, I remember there, I, I see, you know, this is how bad they did it. I can't even remember the phrase, <laughs> but um, there was this, there was this horrible CW show a few years ago called cult. Oh. And, and like every single episode they had characters like repeat this phrase and it was supposed to be like weird and mysterious and like really get you into the like meta world of the show. And it totally failed. Cause I can't even remember <laughs> what the phrase was. And I watched like five episodes. These things just snap right off. <laughs> um, yeah, that uh, does not surprise me. Uh, I mean, I think we'll probably end up talking about this a lot because, and we've personally just had a lot of conversations about this, like shows that are very much trying to work in the vein of a, uh, of Twin Peaks and of Lynch and like whether or not they get it right. I mean, I think um, maybe we'll end up talking about it later, but for me, one of the only shows that I've ever seen managed to pull off 
anything like what Twin Peaks is doing is a French miniseries called um, Petit Quinquin or Little Quinquin in English. Uh, I actually can't remember. Did you see that show, Simon? I watched the first episode. I'm not a, a Bruno Dumont fan, um, and I, I found it very irritating. But I can I can definitely see how how it it it, it would have some of that appeal. I'm not really a Bruno Dumont fan either, but uh, once you get into the middle of it, there are a couple of sequences in it that are such so perfectly in the spirit of something like Twin Peaks that it's kind of amazing. But uh, but anyway, it's a bit off track. Um, but yeah, for the for the pilot, um, I mean, I, I suppose just so for anybody who hasn't seen it in a long time and is interested in in listening to the podcast, but maybe not going back and rewatching everything, I suppose we should just do like a very brief recap of what actually happens in the episode i mean i don't know does that seem useful to you simon uh sure Very, briefly i mean obviously it, it opens you know i always forget that the first face we see after like this long montage of of the opening and like the factories and whatnot is actually josie josie yeah uh which is an in, a very interesting choice uh but anyway so you know obviously it, it more or less opens with uh the discovery of, of laura's body on the beach uh, you know, she's dead, wrapped in plastic, brings uh, Coop into town, everyone finds out. Well, I mean, the interesting thing there, too, is like, and this is another thing that people don't remember, is that you don't actually get Coop, which is, uh, who played by Kyle MacLachlan, like, a, at that point had already collaborated with Lynch twice in two other films. Um, Kyle MacLachlan doesn't show up in the show until 36 minutes yeah, into the pilot. that's true. Which is which is kind of amazing. I mean, the, the, the opening sequences go through, again, a very choreographed set of moves, um... <clears throat> that follow like this the the genre standards of this type of show which is that you see the body cops arrive deal with the body cops go to tell the father mother hears about it friends hear about it right like it moves through all of these things in a very clear kind of way right. and and uh, you know as my husband pointed out watching it it's like you think oh, you know, I've, like, I've got a, a beat on this show. Like, I understand what's happening. Like, then they're going to start the investigation. And then at 36 minutes, this character, like, from another planet <laughs> arrives in the show and, again, completely sort of blows open what you think is happening. <laughs> like, it's yes. a very different kind of tonal quality to him. There's that procedural vibe at first of, like, okay, yes, everyone gets informed and we sort of start to find out what this what the seedy underbelly of the town is in terms of these... Uh, this, uh, this these almost like incestuous relationships just sort of sprouting around everywhere um and uh, i mean that's really that's really all the episode is uh you know just sort of establishing the relationships getting to know sort of the the tenor of the town and uh, finding out like what the stakes are for everyone that's yeah there's not like a ton of plot really I mean, well, it's weird. There is and there isn't because there's a lot of, of character introduction. I mean, yes. as you say, with, with this many characters, you get a lot of this person is sleeping with this person and this person is married to this other person. And um, I mean, again, one of the, the articles, I think, in the New York Times early on talked about how, you know, as Twin Peaks was sort of hitting its its stride at the beginning and like this big phenomenon, people were not only having viewing parties where they were sort of eating cherry pie, like and apparently this is one of the, again, who knows if this is actually true, but apparently in the first few weeks of Twin Peaks, there were like massive runs on cherry pie and bakeries like could not <laughs> stock it fast enough. Um, but anyway, so alongside the kind of viewing party stuff, there was apparently also um, people having to make like charts where they were keeping track of which character was connected to which because they couldn't just remember. I mean, the thing, again, that we should also acknowledge at this point is that we have a very different 
viewing experience of this show now than would have been available in 1990, right? Yeah. In 1990, people wouldn't have been able to watch it again. They would have been watching it with commercials, which I do think is another very different uh, thing than what we've seen. I mean, I think apparently at the time there were... Um, rumors leading up to the release of the pilot that that Lynch had put his foot down and there wouldn't be any uh, commercials on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it was that uh, ABC was sort of trying to do this to kind of spur... Um, yeah, chatter about the show, that it would be a show without ads. And then, it, like, anyway, there was a lot of talk about whether there would be commercials or not. And then, sure enough, there definitely was commercials yeah. in it. Um, but anyway, so I think we have a very different experience of it now. And also, I mean, I've seen the pilot a million times. I mean, I like, well, you'll probably hear more about what a Twin Peaks nerd I am over the show, but I've seen the pilot so many times. So it, it for me, it's like I have all the information in my head, but I think when you watch it the first time, there is a lot of characters being introduced, a lot of sort of like information about who knows who and who's sleeping with who. But I think the two levels there that are maybe worth separating out is that there is on the one hand kind of like background stories where you have like Shelley sleeping with Bobby, Catherine Martell and Benjamin Horn and Josie and Packard, like all of these people that are sort of on the fringes that are maybe less intimately connected to, to Laura Palmer and the family. There's all of that stuff. But then in, in the middle of it as well, there's this like core of people that are very deeply affected by Laura's death. And that's, I think, where you get some of the really kind of important emotional shifts in the show are like between the moves from those sort of fringe characters back continually to Laura's parents and to um, the Laura Flynn Boyle character, whose name is Donna, and Donna and uh, Laura's two boyfriends, but really one boyfriend, uh, James Hurley. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry, go go ahead, Simon. Uh, the thing that i forgotten about somehow and then found very haunting on rewatch is is this notion of like, Every like no one is surprised exactly yeah. by by her death. Like she she's been gone for like twelve hours or something, but somehow everyone like you know it's it, it's not you know Laura Palmer's dead. It's just she's dead. She's yeah. like she is the center of this town, and everyone knew she was gonna die. So and yet they're also like totally struck by the tragedy of it. That's like a a totally bizarre balance that they went for. And that it's actually, like, really affecting for some reason. I think, I mean, honestly, Simon, I think you probably just hit right there on, like, one of the key aspects of the show. And and we'll, and I obviously we'll keep talking about it, but I mean, I think, uh, I just think this is the genius of this. Is I mean, I think, again, it's it's probably a pretty standard idea that, and, and it is, because there's a million other shows that you can name that do this, where there's a kind of girl at the center of it who's killed, and everybody thinks she's great, but then it turns out she has secrets. Like, I'm thinking of The Killing was another show that, yeah. that did this recently. Um, but uh, but I think what, what Lynch does over the course of Twin Peaks is, yeah, really take seriously this idea that a whole town knew that this girl was in trouble, and really just preferred believing the illusion that she was this perfect prom queen and and really just does not do anything about it. But as you say, is neither is both shocked when the illusion is lifted and, and she's killed, and then also not surprised at all because they all already knew. And I think that tension is like so much at the heart of this show. And really it's at the heart of what Lynch is doing, I think, in his whole aesthetic project, which is this question of, I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of curbing from uh, Dennis's book, but Dennis puts it so beautifully when he says that Lynch is really fascinated with this idea of 
both the pleasures and benefits of believing in an illusion mm -hmm. and the risk and like tragedy of believing in an illusion. And I, and I think, and, and there, I mean, the illusion is as much about film and arts and like the image of things as uh, the reality. But I think that this is so genius at the heart of the show. Yeah. And I think that that duality lives not only in, uh, in Laura and her life and death, but in so many of these uh, supporting characters, and I think one thing that I, I really would love to, to, to feel or understand is if I had a time machine and got to go back and watch this with everyone else, I would love to know how the performers, how the acting was perceived at the time. Oh. Because, like, these are, this is, like, one of the aspects that is so alien to, like, current television is, like, these, especially the supporting uh, actors... They're so they're pitched in a certain way, and they're they're like so up to eleven. I'm thinking specifically, uh, mostly of the the younger actors, like yeah. uh, like James Marshall, Dana Ashbrook, uh, like these guys. Like they're so these are such campy performances. Yeah, and like and in parts of the of the episode, actually in most of the episode, it's kind of funny, and, and in like an over the top kind of way. And I find it interesting that like the number one movie in the country at the time was like John Waters Crybaby because so many of these performances actually have that like that over the top retro like but not act but not real retro quality uh, of Crybaby um but then because it's Lynch and he knows how to do these things like he can modulate uh the aesthetics just enough to make those same performances like really effective and creepy like like he does at the very end of the episode when we get the barking yeah, with uh, Bobby and Mike barking at James Hurley. Yeah, I know. I remember still that sequence from when I watched the show the first time, and I was like, what is happening? Like, I was like, <laughs> I can't, this is insane. Um, because, again, yeah, it's like you – yeah, it sort of makes sense. You're like, yeah, these two guys are trying to intimidate this other guy in this jail. But there is a level of, like, of, of excess and inexplicability to it that just completely throws you. You're like, what? Ah. Ugh. but it's great I mean it's amazing I think in terms of performances like the one because there actually is again a lot of sort of references to this in the in the press about the show um is the one performance that get gets talked about pretty continuously is um Grace Zabriskie who plays mm. Laura Palmer's mother and uh, like and and she's even sort of talked about it a lot which is that people like of all of the kind of performances that maybe hold within them this challenge of being both very sincere but pushed all you know pushed to 11 like just a step too far hers is the one that really holds that in in check in both ways right like you're because again for people who haven't watched the episode recently you get continuous sequences of grace sabrisky like really sort of crying almost screaming like being hysterical sort of uncontrollably and yet, and, and it and it continually crosses into like almost, almost makes you want to laugh. Like there are a couple of parts where she sort of yelps weirdly yeah. that you're like, this is just so strange. But um, but then simultaneously in the same sequence, like there's one right in the middle of the episode where Doc uh, Hayward sort of gives her an injection to calm her down so she can talk to the cop. And he's asking her questions and, and Grace Zabriskie is sort of trying to get out like phrases that she said to Laura Palmer the night before. It's things like, good night, mm -hmm. sweetheart. And, and her voice, like, she keeps sort of choking on the words and keeps sort of breaking down. And it is it is one of the most raw, kind of, like, brutal performances. And I think, again, Lynch is so good at, at walking that line of, 
of understanding that there's almost a similar um, move to be made there, like a move towards both the kind of hyper excessive comedic aspects of the performance is like the mirror image of the move towards just the unbelievable rawness and pain of the performance. And the, and here they don't they don't end up canceling each other out. They just make it stronger. Like they make it harder even to kind of incorporate, which again, I think speaks to a lot of what he's doing in the whole show, but it's very challenging to watch her in those sequences. And I think honestly, people take the easy way out sometimes and simply laugh at all of it. And I don't think it's, I don't think you're laughing because it's funny. You're laughing because it's it's very difficult to watch. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing as a defense mechanism. Yeah. Uh, Grace Zabriskie to me is like one of the like five like ultimate Lynchian actors, like almost yeah. up there with Kyle MacLachlan, like especially like we only get like a like a tip of it here, but like her work in Inland Empire is just amazing. Um, yep. Like I think if if he'd had the idea to shoot her in like hyper close up in digital in 1990, he would have done it. <laughs> But oh yeah, but totally. We there yet. Um, I, the other performance I wanted to mention though, because I think it, like it's worth mentioning, is maybe a contrast to the to the sort of more uh, hyper <laughs> ones of the other people. Is um, the one that actually still stands out for me over the years, going back to this episode, is um, is Laura Flynn Boyle's performance as Donna. Mm -hmm. She has some of the most. Um, maybe more kind of straightforwardly, like tragic scenes, like scenes where a character is, because she, she's Laura's best friend, like hearing that her best friend has died um, and, and just sort of weeping over it. And I still find them some of the most heartbreaking <laughs> sequences in the show. And I think, um, like we haven't talked about this so much, maybe just what Lynch is doing with the filmmaking, but I think the sequence in the middle of, uh, it's maybe like a third of the way into the episode where, the parents have both heard and you move to kind of a long sequence of the high school, mm -hmm. which is sort of, again, one of the great parts of the pilot. And uh, and in fact, apparently Lynch has sort of talked about when they chose that high school to shoot at. Uh, the fact that the high school was still very much sort of like painted as if it was the 1950s, like the high school was built in the 50s. It looked like it was from the 50s. Um, that that ended up influencing very much the way that they sort of sort of set design and costume everyone as if it's a sort of mix of the 50s and the 80s. Uh, and like, well, we'll keep talking about that. I suppose the, the aesthetic quality of that. But anyway, uh, when you get to the high school, one of my favorite sequences in the whole show is the sequence where you're in the classroom and you see kind of Audrey and James and Donna all in the classroom and a cop comes in to talk to the teacher and nobody says anything to anybody else. There's no dialogue that you hear that says Laura's passed away. All you actually hear is at one point Donna looks out the window and a girl runs through the yard mm -hmm. crying, screaming. And it cuts back and all it is is a series of kind of choreographed looks moving between people and the teacher looks at Laura's desk and uh, Donna starts crying and James becomes upset. And it's, I still think it's, it, there's something that Lynch taps into there, which is, again, what you've already mentioned, which is that nobody actually, everybody already knew this was going to happen. Everybody was just waiting to find out when Laura had died. Like, it, like they didn't, they didn't literally know, but they figuratively knew. And it, I don't know. I think it's a, a genius mm -hmm. scene. I want to take uh, a moment. A while ago, like a few months ago, uh, you discovered uh, a set of IRC chats. Oh, yeah. Uh, that So essentially, there was, for, for people who don't know, in the olden days of the interwebs, uh, people w would talk via, via IRC chats. And we found, well, we found, who found exactly? Olivier found them? No, I think I like I was looking for them. My husband helped uh, find dig these up, actually. Okay. I think, and then there was a blog that had done the work for us, which yes. was great. <laughs> so we found uh, this set of IRC chats from when Twin Peaks was originally airing, 
And uh, what's even luckier is we found these really spooky audio recordings of said IRC chats. I'd love to play one of them for you now because, uh, you know, people had all sorts of theories about who the killer was. And some of the theories are wild and hilarious and possibly even accurate. But of course, we couldn't possibly spoil that for you. I just wanted to quickly uh, play you one of these uh, spooky recordings I found. April 17th, 1990. Nick. Here's my theory. The sheriff did it. Why? Because no one would ever suspect him. And just think of how good he'll look when he catches the killer. He's going to frame someone. I don't know who. Remember how old the mayor is? That's right. He's going to retire. And guess who's going to run for mayor? That's right, the sheriff, who's a power-hungry sociopath. You want to know how he did it? He started a cult that the town is going to blame the murder on. Many people know about the cult and are in it, but it's very secret. The only evidence thus far is the scene where Bobby and his best friend are barking at Jay in the town prison. When Bobby started barking, his friend joined in immediately, indicating it's something they've done before. I maintain they do it at meetings of the cult. The evil sheriff theory also explains why he is seducing the richest woman in Twin Peaks. More developments on Friday, when I have a completely different set of theories. And that leads me into the genius of the show, and like one of the most influential aspects is ABC having the presence of mind to like when they hooked in Lynch to like to connect it to popular imagination by like leaning into the mystery aspect and yeah. and like activating people's most like paranoid fantasies and like their their like detective lizard brains. <laughs> to, to put it the only way I can think of and like in a way that like no like so many that that's like one of the most influential aspects like so many shows since then have really tried to like activate viewer imagination and get them involved in yeah. um in in the process of investigation and, and it was even like obviously it was it was referencing who shot JR but like I I, I always think of like the Simpsons two-parter even I feel like there's there hasn't been like anything close in terms of like participatory television since then which is kind of sad yeah it's true i mean i think like lynch's work particularly in the later part of his career really follows a trajectory where like twin peaks ends up standing in for maybe the, the his first like real kind of experimentation with this fascination of like a of a long-standing crime where you don't know what's happened and there's a sort of mystery to be solved but even in twin peaks of course you still have like a character who's there trying to solve the crime, whether or not Kyle MacLachlan is doing it in maybe the most, like, the quickest way is a different question, but he's there at least sort of solving the crime. And then as you move through Lynch's other films, like, particularly into things like Mulholland Drive, the, the mystery instead just becomes, like, the structure of the film. And as you say, like, the spectator is really the one, like, Lynch becomes more and more interested in making the spectator into the the mystery solver, where the spectator has to make sense of the narrative themselves. Um, but he's, he's definitely doing some of that already with, uh, with Twin Peaks too. But no, I think you're, you're totally right though. Like this idea of Twin Peaks um, really managing to tap into that idea. And I think 
maybe people who are not, again, super familiar with the history of the show don't know this, but because I think there's maybe a sense like when the internet really picked up in the, what, like 93, 94, mm -hmm. that that was when shows were really able to sort of use the internet and, and have this kind of connection with the fans, uh, you know, with shows like The X-Files and stuff where there were chat rooms. But as you say, like Twin Peaks actually had a huge amount of like, chatter online but the thing you have to qualify that because it was really pre what we understand as the internet they were basically like private groups that people had set up but there were like tens of thousands of posts about Twin Peaks on these things they were massive um, and, and like we can talk about this later but like part of what helped the show stay in as decent of a slot as it got. Like, the fact, the show was, um, they were going to take it off the air at one point, effectively, not air the last few episodes. And the fans started, at Lynch's request, started a massive letter-writing campaign. So, like, there really was a way in which fans were very much sort of part of the show, and the show and the network very savvily kind of created a universe around it. And, like, we can talk about this um, more as we go on, but, yeah. like, I finally got a copy of uh, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which is a book that was released at the end of uh, the first season and very much plays into this stuff. And But, yeah, we'll keep talking and that, about that. That was written by Jennifer Lynch, right? It was, uh, David Lynch's daughter. And I'm I'm, like, maybe 20 pages into it, and... It is brutal. Like, the things I do for this podcast, dear viewers, it is not an easy book to read. Uh, not in the sense that it's bad quality. It's it's good quality. It's very, it's just very difficult. And, and that'll become clearer why later. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I've got a great, great clip I'm going to play in, like, a future, like, a distant future episode of uh, Lynch on, I think, Letterman. Uh, Letterman or Leno uh, reading out the letter he wants people to send to Bob Iger. I love Lynch's late night appearances. Um, they also like really prefigure some of his future acting, even like his, I don't know if you saw his guest stint on Louie, but I did. That was amazing. Yeah, it was great. That was like one of the greatest things in the last few years. Uh, we'll, we'll have occasion to talk about Lynch as actor uh, yes. later, but he's, he's such a great, great actor anyway. Um, so I, I guess, is, is there anything else we wanted to mention about the pilot uh, before we, before we think about wrapping up? I wanted to ask, so like, if we're talking about um, this uh, this sense of like the viewer kind of being drawn into the universe of Twin Peaks, because like that that really is what it is, and and we'll we'll keep talking about it, I suppose, as we go on. But this, um, I think Lynch very famously once said something like, "All of his all of his movies are set in the universe of Twin Peaks," um, which mm -hmm. is a great line, and we'll we'll keep talking about that. But I mean, I think for people who are are maybe not as like involved in the fan culture of this show, part of what really struck everybody's fancy here is the fact that it really does feel like a universe that kind of keeps being built out and extended um, and you know I am like a huge nerd for that kind of stuff and so I'm sort of always obsessed with this like idea of the universe it's so fascinating but like for me that really mattered when I saw it when I was young but I kind of just wanted to hear maybe more Simon about what your not just sort of quality sense of the pilot was watching it, but like what your reactions were to the show generally in terms of your own liking or disliking of it or whatever when you first saw it. Like, did it really capture your imagination kind of thing? I mean, I was already, I was primed to love it because I had loved what I'd seen of Lynch's filmography up till then. There's still a couple of his movies that I haven't seen, but um, I think... Is it The Straight Story? I have never seen The I, Straight I still, Story. I, I keep planning to watch it and I still don't, even though I keep hearing it's amazing. I did rewatch The Elephant Man after John Hurt died. Didn't like it as much as I remembered. Mm, uh, interesting. Although I, although I still find it t terribly affecting. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think the quality about Lynch's films that I find the most fascinating and that keeps me coming back, and I think Twin Peaks is no exception, is that his the world that he builds, or the world that he builds that, you know, you just mentioned that's all kind of the same world, 
he manages, no matter how horrific it gets, and Twin Peaks will get very horrific for anyone who hasn't seen it before. Um, and, and maybe because it's it's horrific in a way that we're not familiar with in our reality, um, his world's or world is so seductive. And it's really, it is a world like you want to go to Twin Peaks. You want to, you want to experience that world. It's like another universe, even though it is filled with terrible, terrible things and, 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 you know, just like awful occurrences. Uh, maybe it's because, maybe it's partially because um, everyone for the, like the vast majority of people in, in Lynch's worlds are mostly quite decent. Yeah. Um, and they're just happen to be beset upon by these almost cosmic forces. Uh, maybe that's part of it, but like I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that when I watch Twin Peaks or when I watch Mulholland Drive, these are worlds that I, I I'm, I'm quite addicted to, and yeah. like, and I, I'm not ready to leave them when, when the, when the media ends, even though like it, re they really do get quite terrible. Yeah, that, they're hard. That's like it's not like when you watch like the vast majority of horror films. The, the horror movie ends and you're relieved to be in, in your world for the most part. Um, yeah. But you know, that's, that's not the feeling of, of ending a Lynch film, at least not for me. No, I mean, I think that's, that perfectly captures a lot of what I love about it too. And I, I think um, again, uh, I'm quoting from Dennis here in the book, but he, he described, I think something about the show perfectly well that I'd never thought about before, which is the fact of it being quite comforting. Like there, mm -hmm. there being a sense of it as being very, cocoon-like. It's like, you know, the world isn't, the world of the show isn't just um, terrifying and mysterious. It's also very, yeah, welcoming and, and warm and, like, soft. And, and it, like, he, it, you know, he talks about particularly the music in that regard. The music is being almost like, you know, you want to fall asleep to this music. Like, it's so beautiful and um, and welcoming. And, and also, I mean, there's also the joke about, like, the association with very um, kind of censorious pleasures around the show, right? Like, the fact that, I don't know about you, Simon, but whenever I watch it with my husband, like, we always need to get donuts and, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have coffee. And, like, you, you want to kind of participate in these very simple pleasures that the show seems to be offering on the one hand, while at the same time, very dark and dire kind of scenarios. Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, all of that like perfectly captures it. I mean, I, I don't remember super well my first time watching all of this back in the day. Like I think I was 18 uh, maybe. And when I watched it the first time, you couldn't, most of it was still not very available. You, there were videotape sets that were available. I watched uh, the first season on video and at that point, the only video that had been released in North America, I believe, was uh, of the pilot, had the European ending on it, which we, which we haven't talked about uh, yet. But the fact, um, maybe so people aren't so familiar with this, but when Lynch agreed to shoot the pilot in order to secure funding for it, uh, ABC got funding from European sources as well, and Lynch was contractually obligated to shoot an ending for the pilot that would turn it into a self-sufficient movie, and they released that in Europe. Um, and for a long time, again, because of weird contract stuff, that was the only video version of the show that was available in North America. Um, and for anybody who hasn't seen it, like now it's now it's the more difficult one to see. Now it's not as common, although it's on both of the video sets, uh, sorry, both of the DVD and Blu-ray sets. It um, It's a very different experience yeah. <laughs> when you watch the European one. Um, have you seen it, Simon? I can't remember. I've only, I, I think I saw it a very long time ago. I've only seen it like recently in terms of like I rewatched the pilot and then I read up on the differences between them. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, to, to be honest, I don't think it's the ideal way to watch the pilot. 
Yeah, it's it's really not. Um, I mean, and again, I think now most people won't have that problem because the one that's sort of on Netflix and on the Blu-ray sets is the is the actual one. Um, but there, but anyway, so that's how I saw it. And then I remember trying to watch the second episode and being like, what is happening? Like, this doesn't follow from what ended the first one. And yeah. so it was, it was a very different experience. Um, I would say I wouldn't. And then eventually at some point I was able to track down videos of the second season, which is also a very different experience from the first season. And, um, but anyway, despite all of that, like despite the confusion around the first encounter with the show, I mean, I was still completely hooked on it like right from the beginning i mean i think I, re I watched everything sort of over like four days or something like a psychopath um and then and then eventually watched the film uh and we'll we'll talk about the film down the road in a different episode but um yeah i mean i think all just to say that i completely agree it's a war it's a world that i still to this day don't want to leave like i so I, we were talking about uh watching the pilot right before this and for both Simon and I, it's like the difficulty is not watching episodes, the difficult or finding time to watch episodes. The difficulty is stopping ourselves at the end of, yeah. <laughs> of a pilot, like waiting until next week to, to watch the episodes. Um, it's it's very much something that you could just eat like a lot of pie. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's so funny to think that like when the show was originally airing, people heard, you know, North American viewers heard like, oh, in Europe, there was an ending where... They revealed the, the killer. The killer was revealed, but, exactly. But we're, but we're never going to know because it was in Europe. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> such, such a different different time for consuming television. Uh, different time. Well, and also, because I, I, that, that actually isn't even really correct. I mean, no. the, the way, yeah, the, the killer that is revealed in the European one has some relation to what happens in the American series and is, and is relevant. And Lynch sort of worked some of that footage into the series later. But it's not. It's a. It's a different plot line than what gets developed in the American one, certainly. Yeah. Um. But that's all we're gonna say about that. Exactly. Uh. So I'm. I'm very pleased to say that we that we're we're winding up at a at a sane time. I wasn't sure how this was gonna work. Our next episode will cover, uh, the se the second and third episodes that aired. Yeah. Like I said before, we're gonna have uh, some guests. We've got a couple planned already. Uh. We've got lots more to plan. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is. Which is going to be fun. Uh, I know who some of them are. Uh, I don't know who the rest will be. There's there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of gaps still to be filled. But uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, and can I just say like the the one thing I'll say about having the show come back and having like a new season to enjoy is like rewatching the show now the original run as as alien as the show may have seemed to viewers at the time it's still extremely beholden to like you know, 1990 TV aesthetics, like in terms of the look and, and even the editing rhythms and stuff. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm most interested to see like how 2017 Twin Peaks, how that as that like, and how like, I don't know, because like, it's not going to look or, or feel the same. It just can't because it's, yeah, it can't. or if it tries to, that would be a terrible idea. And I can't see that happening. Um, so like that's that's the thing that I'm most looking forward to about about the new episodes is just seeing seeing what form it takes just in in those first few seconds of being like oh yeah this is <laughs> this is what we're in for now yeah I mean I think we could say here just to wrap up too for the listeners here it's like the the news that the show was coming back. Um, I think still probably receives like weekly celebration in my house like it, it's very this was like 
you know, news to shake the world that Twin Peaks is coming back. And, and um, I think one thing I would just say right now, too, is that there's so much it's become a kind of pretty common narrative in, in people who with people who watch television to say like, oh, reboots, remakes, like ugh, they are always terrible. And, you know, certainly like Gilmore Girls and all of these things recently can maybe speak to that and whatever. That's fine. But I think people who are gearing up uh, like us, gearing up to prepare for the kind of 217 ones, I think it's worth thinking about that it's maybe a good idea to now sort of get in your head that it probably won't be exactly the same show and it will be very different. But this is David Lynch. Like, we're getting 18 new hours of David Lynch, like, film and moving image. I mean, that in and of itself is a crazy cause for celebration for a guy who has had such an impact on sort of cinematic thinking but actually really hasn't made that many films. I mean, this is, like, an amazing thing. Um, and anyway, I'll, I'll just add as well, because I don't think Simon said it, but the episodes that we're recording here, the schedule is going to work out so that if we, you know, if you kind of listen to an episode a week and we record an episode a week, we're going to run right into the new ones. This will take us right to the beginning of the new episodes. Yes, that's the idea anyway. Hopefully, fingers crossed, that all works out. Thank you, Kate. Um, uh, I think we should we should wrap up here. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week for the next two episodes. Thank you very much. Yay. Bye. Thank you.